Hey, podcast listeners, Mackenzie here. I wanted to personally thank you for listening and being a part of our community. We couldn't do this show without you. As we shape the next series of the Living Centered Podcast, I wanted to invite you specifically to help us out. We want to hear from you. We're currently in the process of curating a series all around exploring the relationships that make up our lives. Together with various experts, clinicians, and on-site alum, we'll explore the nuances, intricacies, and impact of the relationships within which we all exist. From families of origin to friendships, dating, working relationships, and beyond. We hope to host conversations with guests who bring a definitive and unique perspective. This is where you come in. We want to know your pressing relationship questions. You can submit your questions to podcast at experienceonsite.com and you might just hear an answer on our next series. When I really boil it down, it's giving people space to not be me. Like, you're not me. You don't have to think everything I think. You don't have to agree with everything that I agree in order for me to not demonize you. It's just giving them that space to be themselves and to interact with them that way versus just, this person's just bad. Mm. This person's just a bad person. You know, and making people the thing that they did. Mm. And then doing the same thing for myself, giving myself the space to just, to make mistakes, to do dumb things. I, I'm, I'm on television. I sometimes say things that I shouldn't say. Sometimes I write columns that I shouldn't write, you know? And to be able to look back on that and say, you know, I was doing the best I could. It honestly wasn't that great, but you know, now I know better and now I'm going to do better. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. And I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. You don't have to look far in today's 24-hour news cycle to get overwhelmed by discord and division. It's everywhere. From our news feeds to our television programs, and even in our families, it seems like there are no shortage of opportunities to categorize the people who think differently than us as bad. It's exhausting. This week's guest, USA Today columnist, CNN political analyst, and best-selling author Kirsten Powers, is very familiar with the harm, the divisiveness, that has marked the last few years has had on us individually and collectively. Kirsten is a friend of mine, Miles, and on-site. Miles and I sat down with her at the end of last year and had a frank conversation about the harm of binary thinking, how our past can lure us into a pattern of labeling others, and how giving others the permission to be themselves actually creates space for empathy, grace, and understanding. I am inspired by Kirsten's willingness to transparently and vulnerably share her own story over the last few years addressing her past trauma and biases and coming out the other side with a fresh new perspective. We all want to live more centered, grounded lives, but it seems like we're just one scroll away from feeling the tension. Kirsten provides an invitation into a more curious approach to interacting with the people we disagree with without neglecting our own humanity, becoming consumed by despair, or endorsing harmful behaviors. I can't wait for you to listen to this conversation. Kirsten Powers, welcome to the Living Center Podcast. How are you, my friends? Good to see you. I'm great. So good to see your faces. We're excited about having you on. 
I've gotten to know you over the years through mutual friends. We've become a friend and I've always appreciated your unique perspective and the way you process intellectual thought. But uh, in our most recent conversations, the last couple of years, how you've really been trying to anchor it in emotional wellness and intelligence. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, from your seat, I just I can't begin to imagine the lift and the weight of the last year for many reasons. Obviously, a lot of people have been had a heavy lift with pandemic and economic crisis, but you particularly having to analyze and, you know, talk about this in a public format from the political climate to everything else that's, that has been going on. How have you or have you uh, kept some sense of balance uh, through this season and, you know, kind of how are you showing up today? Yeah, it's a great question. It's not a simple answer. Uh, it's multi-layered, I would say. I would say, fortunately for me, well, first of all, the last four years have been very hard, you know, I think for a lot of people, because I, whatever, you know, whichever side you fall on, the country has been so clearly divided in a way that we haven't been before um, since Trump came into office. And so I think, you know, I, I think that that's been difficult. It's been, you know, it's been hard to navigate. And I think it's been, you know, I kind of found myself being very triggered by a lot of what was happening. I realized something was off with me and that I was not really feeling as grounded and feeling um, as graceful as I, I thought that I was. And, um, and it put me sort of on this, this journey. And one of the really most important parts of that journey was going to onsite. And, you know, it's one of these things where I can kind of see it all in hindsight, how it kind of unfolded. But the reality was, I didn't know what was wrong. I just knew that I was miserable. And I knew that I was upset all the time. I was, I was angry um, at what was happening in the world. I was physically ill. I had, you know, fibromyalgia. I had uh, chronic fatigue. I um, had been diagnosed with chronic Lyme, with Epstein-Barr. You know, I had like, these mystery illnesses, right? So I just, I just felt terrible. And, and even when I went to onsite, you know, for anybody who's been to onsite, most of the people come in and they kind of know what they're there for, at least in my group. You know, they're, I'm here because this happened with my dad or my husband cheated on me or I cheated on my wife or whatever it is, you know, they're kind of there to process something. And I was like, I don't know what's wrong. <laughs> like I'm just unhappy and sick. And so through working with the wonderful person, am I allowed to use his name? Oh yeah. Jim Cress, who was the leader of our group. You know, we spent a lot of time unpacking like what was behind a lot of of what was happening with me. And it really came down to unresolved trauma around the death of my father and the death of my grandmother. And so that's what we worked on. And within three weeks, I am not exaggerating, all of my physical symptoms were gone. Wow. Wow. And I can see now in hindsight, it was my unforgiveness for myself because I had a lot of guilt around not being with my grandmother when she died and my father and I were in a fight when he died. And so, so not being able to have really any grace for myself. And so that's what led me to this topic of this book that I'm working on about grace and it, and then through this journey of grace, I think I, 
I started having this healing once I was able to let go of some of this trauma and starting to see things in, in a different way, in a less dualistic way where everything was good or evil. I, I just ended up going on this like multi-year journey that, that really led me into this idea of grace and realizing how we don't really have give each other grace and we don't give ourselves grace. And so, and of course, until you can give yourself grace, you can't really give other people grace. Hmm. And so trauma healing was so central to that for me, but I never would have thought that. Yeah. Was it a long time from the death of your father and your grandmother before you were at Outside? Really long. Yeah. I mean, it had been like a decade probably. I had been sick for a while, you know, and, um, but it just kept getting worse and it just kept having no explanation. And then, and then I just started being so unhappy on top of that around what was happening in the country, you know, frustrated and angry. So if I hadn't had those physical symptoms, I wouldn't be where I am right now. Mm. I really believe that. Like if I hadn't been sick, I don't know that I would have been desperate enough to go and, and, and do this work. And so because I did that and because it then put me on this trajectory, I found a therapist here in DC who does very similar work. I'm very grounded and I've been, I don't know. I've just, I, I'm not gonna say I had a great year. You know what I mean? Like it's terrible. I have a lot of empathy for everything that's happening with everybody, but I didn't take it all on. Mm. You know, I, ha- I have boundaries. Like I was just like, I'm not going to sit around and consume information all day that upsets me. I'm going to be informed. I'm going to know enough to do my job, but you know, I'm going to just, and you know, and I learned all these tools of, you know, I got really into Richard Rohr and contemplative Christianity and centering prayer and all these, just all these tools and just and continuing to sort of peel away the layers of the onion of the trauma. Um, and so I just, I just experienced the world in a just radically different way. Had I not done that stuff, I can't even imagine what this year would have been like. Thank you uh, for sharing that. First off, it's I think it's it's powerful to hear that part of your story and your truth because so many people, I'm sure, just get the public persona. Of, oh yeah, I'm sure people would be shocked to find out I was sick. But just you having a public profession, you kind of get the pedestal um, unfairly sometimes and. But I also think there's so many people that can relate to where you started when you begin to tell a little bit of your personal story, which was, well, let's just take it back a little bit more because you think about it, there's been such significant divide. Yeah. And I think division is such an activator when there is an unresolved trauma narrative. As you know, the way I look at, at trauma is it's universal. I, I think everybody experiences it on on some level i think we mischaracterized it for a long time as we begin to study it and understand it and now we know it's it's virtually anything other than nurturing and everybody experiences that sometimes individually socially through um a lot of different influences Mm -hmm. in our history and our current environment so the fact that we nobody escapes adverse life circumstances we all experience emotional or psychological trauma at some level some more than others then Times like this open a big window and a door. And I don't think sometimes people have the courage or the agency to even think about, oh, you mean the fact that I feel like this could be an opportunity for me to take a look at something. And I love your story started with physical symptoms because Mm -hmm. that is one of the things that people 
I think we all I used to misunderstand about trauma and emotional pain, too, is that we hold pain in our bodies and it manifests physically and can wreak havoc on our immune systems, particularly autoimmune yeah. diseases. And we hear that more than we probably report. So to hear it from you being able to tell the story is much better than us to be able to tell the story. We know we're onto something here. And I think science is catching up. And I think more and more people are going to get invited into that narrative uh, when people like you speak up about it. So there's a long yeah. way. I, I have a very good friend that you guys know, I won't say his name, who also had the same experience, you know, who had had the same kind of physical illness. And when he dealt with his trauma, it completely went away. And of course, when you have these kind of mystery illnesses, there's nothing you can do. You know, so you're just kind of like, oh, this is going to be the rest of my life, I guess. But I do feel like it, in this perverse way, was a blessing. Because like I said, I don't know if I would have ever started down the path I started down without, the, without that, you know, without being sick, without being that desperate. You talked about something that I think would be really useful to hear more about, which is how you've responded over the last 12 months mm-hmm. in that I don't feel like I've taken on a lot of what's out there and a lot of what's happening. I feel like I've had some boundaries intact and that's probably the thing we're hearing the most of right now is the secondary and vicarious nature of what people have consumed and experienced has their systems completely overwhelmed and say more about that. Yeah. I actually write about that in my book because it's like boundaries are I didn't really understand what boundaries were before, you know, until I started, went to onsite and I worked with, you know, my therapist because I would go into therapy and I'd start getting worked up about something, you know, and then she would just say, is, is this yours? Uh, and I was like, what do you mean? She's like, is this your problem? Like, I don't understand. Like what, like, does this belong to you? Like, is this a, you know, and it was just like, it's so revolutionary to be like, yeah. no, it doesn't. Yeah. And so for me, I'm writing this book about grace and what I really came down to about what grace, there's the grace that you get from God, right? Which is unmerited favor. And then there's a grace that we can offer each other or we can offer ourselves. And I, st- and I still think it is unmerited favor. Nobody has to do anything to earn it. Right. But it also for me, when I really boil it down, it's giving people space to not be me. Like, you're not me. You don't have to think everything I think. You don't have to agree with everything that I agree in order for me to not demonize you. It's just giving them that space to be themselves and to interact with them that way versus just this person's just bad. Mm. This person's just a bad person, you know, and making people the thing that they did. Mm. And then doing the same thing for myself, giving myself the space to just to make mistakes to do dumb things. I, I'm, I'm on television. I sometimes say things that I shouldn't say. Sometimes I write columns that I shouldn't write, you know, and to be able to look back on that and say, you know, I was doing the best I could. It honestly wasn't that great, but, you know, now I know better and now I'm going to do better. Mm-hmm. I think it's a Maya Angelou quote. And so it, that, that kind of framing of the world is the opposite of how I used to live. I mean, it's just because... Our country is very binary. I was in the evangelical world for a long time, which is very binary. And then I had a personality structure I created around trauma, childhood trauma, that was extremely binary when I was unhealthy. 
even with my faith, you know, it's, there's mystery. I don't have to answer every question. The Bible doesn't have to be an oracle, right? It's like, I can do the best that I can do to understand it, but some, you know, I don't have to like put everything in a little box, label it and put it on a shelf. That was just, I, could, I didn't think that way before and I couldn't think that way until I got this, some of this trauma out of my system because it's what made me feel safe. I had a similar experience when I attended on-site Living Centered program that I remember thinking growing up in my religious tradition, I learned about grace, but I never understood it. Like I couldn't fathom it kind of. Yeah. And then sitting with a small group of people and just hearing their worst and loving them so much yeah helped me see this like oh this is what it is this is what grace is yeah and so I love that that idea of the reframe for you and just the shift of we aren't our worst was so transformative for me too yeah hey friends today is the 10th episode of the living centered podcast Thank you so much for joining us every week for Authentic Conversations. We're so excited about what is to come. To celebrate, we're offering free shipping on your entire order from the Onsite Mercantile, our online store of curated goods that are good for you. We've created an incredible collection with some of our favorite emotional wellness resources, gifts, books, and apparel. You don't have to come to Tennessee to bring a little piece of Onsite home to you. Shop our collection of goods at onsiteworkshops.com slash mercantile and use the code CELEBRATE at checkout to receive free shipping. Thanks so much for listening. For people who might be activated or feel that mysticism or dualistic thinking is risky or scary, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, maybe it's trauma-informed like what you describe with your story. Um, or another imprint, but what would be a message you'd have for me? And what do you think when you were in that space, the origin, what was the payoff? Safety, you know, uh, you feel like you have the answers, you know, and you feel like you can explain everything. Hmm. And, that, and that if you can't explain something, you can just spend your day reading the Bible or talking to your pastor and you can figure it out. You know, it's interesting. It made me feel that, but then it all then it also made me not feel good. And so I think because I'm a left of center person politically, I grew up in a very liberal family. I'm, I have always been very um, pro equality for women and gay people and all these other things. There was a tension for me that didn't doesn't exist for a lot of people who are conservative. And that was a very, very horrible, hard time for me. Years of existential misery, Mm. you know, of because I was so binary. I just was realizing this when I was writing the book. I was so binary that I was like, it's either this or it's nothing. Mm. So it's either I'm all in with the evangelical theology or it's nothing. Because I had been taught that the other people over here weren't really Christians. And so it was either you do this or you're just, you're, you're nothing. And what I found was that for me, that wasn't true. I mean, that actually there is a way to be, to really have a strong faith and a strong relationship with God and 
with Jesus and embrace mystery and say, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know. I do know some fundamental things about God. Um, and I can tell you now I, I feel very safe. And I think I feel way really more legitimately safe than I did then because I was so fearful. Yeah. There's a, you're describing a process that, you know, is kind of one of our primary initiatives, you know, here in the onsite framework is curating psychological safety and community because mm-hmm. it's such a rare commodity out in culture. It's countercultural. And we know psych, from a psychology standpoint, that that is where sustainable change and healing take place. It just is. When you can raise your shame ceiling enough that the payoff of certainty and being right, you're able to look at the other side of that equation. And ultimately, I think that's the origin is when we feel safe, when we feel certain, when we feel right, then we don't feel shame as much. But ultimately, it's the breeding ground for shame because it's where perfection and a lot of other things originate. Yeah. That's, you know, one of my favorite therapeutic modalities is, is motivational interviewing. And that's what you hear a lot in therapeutic circles where people turn things into I statements and where you basically, you ask people with a statement instead of a question. So say more about that. And, mm-hmm. and the, you know, the origin of why we might do that is because when we ask someone a question, it implies that there's an answer. And if there's an answer, it implies that it's either going to be right or wrong. And we know that there is so much shame out there that that typically shuts people. A question itself can shut someone down because we don't want to be wrong. Because if we're wrong, ultimately, it's a threat to our system and where we are. And so I think, you know, the freedom and you don't have to, I love what you said. You don't have to lose anything that feels solid for you. I think people think that if I'm going to have a little bit more not all the answers or, you know, mystical thought or that I've got to lose a belief system or deconstruct a belief system. You don't even always have to. I think that's what's so scary, particularly. And I know we were, we were going back and forth between mm-hmm. our lane, the emotional uh, psychological lane to spirituality, but I think the two are closely tethered together. Mm-hmm. So I just think it's such an interesting I, uh, construct and context that I think it's dated. I think the fact that in the 50s, when we made up our mind that the nuclear family system was the only way to create uh, stability and it was uh, to eliminate some of the problems we saw socially. And it was a failed experiment. It basically deconstructed community and Mm -hmm. We've been trying to reroute or refix that narrative ever since, but we still compare ourselves to it. There's a right and wrong way to do things. And that's the origin of the way we look. It breeds shame. Shame ends up creating toxic behavior. Ultimately, it, it is the starting place for a lot of trauma and it creates haywire. And now we're seeing statistically that, you know, I think a lot of people are now are pointing at the pandemic and the social unrest and all the other things that have happened over the last couple of years to our decline in mental health, all-time high anxiety, all-time high in depression, all-time high in post-traumatic stress, all-time high in suicide, every, you know. But we weren't in a mental health utopia pre-pandemic. You know, all this has been building, and now it's like, boom. The way we've been doing things, looking at things, building community, experiencing and holding people in grace and empathy is not working. 
and there's got to be a paradigm shift. And I think that's, I'm getting way up on a. Yeah, I mean, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things also with the sort of religious paradigm in whatever system that you're in, and, and I'm just going to keep to Christianity because that's all that I know personally, is you don't know what you don't know. And you're often being told you know, I have friends who grew up in evangelical families in the South that were just told all sorts of things about liberals that just aren't true. I mean, we construct these kind of stories, and liberals do it about conservatives too, you know, that like construct these stories about what people believe without even knowing them, you know, so construct the stories about the godless Episcopalians if you're an evangelical. Well, I, you know, when I go to Episcopal church, I see a lot of God there. I see a real love of, of Christ. I, I don't, you know, so... People need to really step back and be like, I may not know, I may not have the whole story here. And if I don't know anybody, you know, who actually believes this, then I definitely don't have the whole story here, you know, and that we're all trying to do the best that we can do, you know, and to really give people the benefit of the doubt instead of making someone good and somebody bad. And so I think that was the other problem with evangelicalism for me was that I was already predisposed to sort everything into black and white because I had childhood trauma that made me that way. And then I was given like weapons. <laughs> <laughs> I could actually like make this, like this is what God says. And you know, you're bad because you don't think, you know what I mean? It just really was not, it was a recipe for disaster. Mm. And then it ultimately was turned against me, you know, because I was never doing good enough. I was never, if I only just, did better, had better quiet time, read my Bible more, whatever it was, like there was always something I needed to do to make myself worthy, you know? Yeah. Um, I, and I, I was going to say, I think a lot of people can relate to that. I certainly can, but I think there's a, I think some of it, it, and I'm curious what you think about how much of it you feel could be language and packaging. Cause I, I'm obviously in the, the, the personal growth transformative, you know, create more self-awareness, more empathy, more connection. And we can have tra a transformation recipe that will help heal yeah. some of the ailments out in community. But I don't know that we're ever going to get everybody through a process like this. So I'm thinking about bigger implications. Okay, well, the people that can, great. Um, I hope they go out and do things like what you're doing. Uh, use it first for you and then ripple that out through writing about it differently than I might. Mm -hmm. um, because I think we need other voices around the table because just just like I think there's baggage in the way we package and communicate and sell religion, there's significant baggage in the way we communicate and sell psychology too. Yeah, but I think that the thing is, and I don't want to like spend, you know, I, and I don't want evangelicals to feel like I'm beating up on evangelicals. I have evangelical friends. This is just my experience, you know, is that if you have, tra if you have tra significant trauma, as I did, my experience was, that it was very anti-therapy, you know, unless you were going to a Christian therapist, there was a lot of spiritual bypassing. And I, and I see this with my friend's parents who are evangelicals, you know, that it's like, just got to trust God. You just got to pray. You just got to take it to the Lord, you know? And it's like, you can, yeah, do that. But also like, maybe you need to deal with some things that, you know, that require somebody who has some experience with this. How much of your imprint, or some of what you've been sharing dictated your choice of career? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, unconsciously, every probably 
A hundred percent. And I think most people who are like in the public eye are there because there's something that they're trying to fill up. I mean, I don't know if that's been your experience when you're working with people, but that's been my experience. And I've certainly had many people who are in the public eye who recognize that about themselves, that there's something, maybe it's that, you, you know, I was not seen growing up, you know, I was, um, I had very dominating parents, very critical parents, very intellectual, they were professors and the only thing that they really valued was, you know, intellect and success and uh, very politically aware. Like we talked about politics a lot and world ideas a lot. And, and I just, I just have to feel like on some level that I just has to have been that like, I, I didn't feel that I just didn't feel seen and I didn't feel heard either. I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, and it is interesting that I, I ended my first you know, period of working in the public eye was at Fox News where everybody disagreed with me, which was my childhood, literally, you know? So it's just like so interesting that like I sort of recreated like this environment where people would talk over me and interrupt me and tell me that I'm wrong. (laughs) It's just like, this is literally my childhood. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's just so, it's just fascinating, you know? And that I didn't really see anything wrong with it and I can see now you know I processed it with my therapist that I disassociated yeah Mm. does it make it harder now that you see all those connections to to do your job or does it make you be able to do it from a healthier place I think it makes me able to do it from a healthier place like I'm not attached to it I do feel like now if I stopped doing it I would be fine you know whereas I don't know if that was true before and I feel sad for myself. You know what I mean? Like when I think back on it, you know, I, I did ultimately come to the point of realizing that it was unhealthy and that I needed to leave. And I left. And I'm also in a much healthier environment. I mean, CNN is just a healthier environment for me. And so it's, it's, it's very different. I'm not, you know, I'm not being ganged up on by four people every single day on the set or whatever. It's, so, yeah, but it does make me sad that I, that I thought that that was normal. Yeah. You know, that I... Um, and, 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 you know, and also I love my parents. I mean, my parents were doing the best they could do, you know, like I got a lot of great things from my parents and lots and lots of lots of great things from them. But, you know, I'm in an Irish family and anyone who's grown up in an Irish family, this is what I'm saying is not really that unusual. And so, you know, they believed it was their job to train me to be like a rigorous thinker and bullying me was part of that, you know, so but, you know, I, I now, again, because of my healing, I can see that. Like, I can have grace for them. I can say, you know, they really were doing the best they could, mm-hmm. you know. And this is how they were raised, and, and they instilled a lot of good values in me. And But, you know, me today, I would never put up with what I put up with before. At the time, did it feel like a lot of responsibility to get across this point of view, this differing point of view? Totally. And then yeah. now you see, like, oh, I was just there to be the counterbalance so they could make all the points they were going to make. Yeah. I felt like if I'm not here, who's going to defend black lives matter. You know, Mm -hmm. if I'm not here, who's going to whatever. And it was, and I had honestly had a lot of democratic friends who were also saying that they were saying like, you need to be there. But the truth is it wasn't healthy for me and it wasn't healthy to always be the person having to push back and to have people coming after me. You know, it just, 
um, maybe for a couple years or something, but I was there for quite some time. So I think that would I be doing what I'm doing right now if I didn't have childhood trauma? I doubt it. Mm. But it's, you know, and that does, again, that doesn't mean every single person in the public eye comes from trauma, but, you know, it's, it's not the most normal thing to do, like to sit on TV every night and like analyze controversial issues. Yeah. No, well, and it's, it's, I think it's, it's powerful because I do work with a lot of people with public professions and it is a, a common thread or narrative that, that I slash we see, but now I'm seeing it is even way more common with the rise in our social media framework ah, yes. in that everybody is public in, in some way that chooses to, I know there's the option to choose not to be public, but you know, I liked what, where, what Lindsay said is I've struggled with it and you can, you can do it if you choose to, if you're passionate about the profession and then you can do it in a healthier way. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, the other thing with the social media thing, and this is something I don't know if you've noticed or not, I'm, I'm sure you have because you have so much more expertise. But once I started understanding trauma, I, so one of the first things I did when I started trying to heal was I got off of social media. And so because I used to be on Twitter all the time. And, um, and I, so I, I got off social media. I stayed on Instagram, you know, just following my friends, not you know, anything more than that. And that made a big difference because I wasn't being constantly activated. And then when I went back on from a more grounded standpoint and with this knowledge about trauma, I was like, wow, this is just a lot of pain. Mm. You know, and I was like, this is just a lot of really traumatized, triggered people. And how quickly things escalate It's because people are so triggered. And like most of the people that I know that are pretty grounded, healthy people actually don't spend that much time on Twitter. You know what I mean? They might go on to get the news or see what's happening, but they're not like getting in fights with people. You know, it's like, they're not doing that kind of stuff. And so I feel like a lot of the de public debate, because so much of it is driven by social media is driven by people who are traumatized, you know, and who are reacting to things. Um, and then everything just escalates so fast and everybody just kind of goes along for the ride, you know, versus like taking a minute, like to, think about things. And, and then and then the other problem is the people are not real people to other people, right? They're just like a picture or an avatar or like they're just some person that just did something stupid somewhere, but we don't know anything about them except for this one thing that they've done, you know? And so they become like the, the thing. And so they're really evil. And, and, you know, I work in a business that goes around digging up the worst things that people ever did and then making them that person. I mean, that is literally what happened. And so everything is very disconnected from normal, the way it used to be, which is your community would hold you accountable for things, you know, and your community knew you as a multifaceted person who maybe wasn't, you know, maybe just had a bad day and did something really stupid, you know, and maybe needed to be held accountable for it but didn't need to be like dehumanized or demonized, right? At the same time, social media has a very a positive upside. There's a lot of issues we wouldn't be talking about or dealing with if it wasn't for social media, so. I do think it always helps when you are thinking about the humans behind, on the other side of screens, instead of just the numbers. For me, at mm -hmm. least, I think that's the magic of when people comment or engaging in a personal way, then it starts to take it from feeling like, oh, I'm putting this out there for the world. And I'm putting this instead, it shifts to like, I'm putting this out there for people that are 
care about me or or following mm-hmm. along in some way. And that mm-hmm. feels easier for me to sort of grasp. Yeah. And that's another thing that just we need way more empathy, you know, mm-hmm. and that we don't see a lot of. And then I do feel like also going through my healing and, you know, having more grace, but also having more empathy for other people, including people that really I really disagree with, mm-hmm. you know, of really taking the time to think like, well, where are they coming? Where are they coming from? Like, why do they feel that way? You know, I'm kind of looking back and realizing that like I wasn't wasn't really doing that. You know, and the funny thing is, like, I thought I was an empathetic person. <laughs> I think everybody probably thinks that, right? <laughs> like, yeah. But I, I really did. Like, I really thought I was really empathetic because I was about some things. I think, I mean, what you just said, even that pausing and thinking what could be behind this for somebody sort of helps foster it. I think when it's just an idea, it's hard to live out. But then when it becomes practical and you're having a hard time understanding somebody and you get curious about what's going on then it can make this shift of like, oh, what's under this for them? Why am I reacting this way to it? That sort of thing. I think the way I was empathetic looking back was I was good at empathizing with someone if I thought it could happen to me. You know, so it'd be like, oh, if that happened to me, I would feel such and such. Like, I'm so empathetic. And Mm -hmm. it's like versus I just don't just I don't agree with what this person's saying. Like, I can't even get into a scenario where I would do what they're doing. But why are they doing it? It's just trying to think like what what is behind this, mm. you know, and it doesn't mean it's like empathy is not endorsement. It's like having empathy for someone does not mean I'm saying that I think that that is definitely the way that the person should be responding. It's just saying like there's something behind this, you know, that's not that that's a bad person. Sometimes, sometimes, I mean, I don't really believe in bad people, but, you know, if a person, you know, it's a person behaving badly. Yeah, that's good. Uh, you know, and, you know, but but like I said, I didn't have that. I just didn't have it. But now understanding trauma, I totally get it. Yeah. That underlying narrative, I think that given the empathy and grace to explore it, you've painted such a good picture of that throughout this whole conversation as we you've woven in your personal journey, your professional journey. A lot of times we'll end with that question. Like, what would you have to say to either yourself 20 years ago or yourself or either other people now about what what would you want them to know about reclaiming their truth and living into the center of who they can become i kind of started there with you yeah if you remember it was kind of one of the first questions i asked but i would ask it here at the end and thank you so much for your time with us today but i would ask you here at the end too is what would you want yourself to know that might be helpful for other people to know as it relates to pursuing living in the center of who you are and who you're becoming a lot of things. And I know it sounds like I'm doing this because of who I'm talking to, but I would just say like, I, I wish that I would have gone to onsite when I was like 12. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but just, I think that the idea that like, that life doesn't have to be hard. Like you don't have to suffer. You don't have to feel bad. Like you can be easy on yourself and easy on other people. And yeah, it's just, I think I just lived so much of my life feeling like it had to be hard. You know, you even see this in this like hustle and grind and all this kind of stuff. And it's just like, no, it's like, actually, I'm not saying bad things aren't going to happen or you're not going to, there's suffering for sure. Like that, that's going to happen. But it's like with the right spiritual and emotional tools and the community, the healthy community that you can foster when you have those 
tools, you know, life is radically different, you know, and I, I just wish I would have known that. I wish I would have known that, that was an option, that it was an option to not kind of hate myself, you know, which I kind of, when I look back, I think I kind of did kind of hate myself, you know, feel like I was broken and, and that I needed to be fixed. And because of that, I projected that onto other people. So, yeah, it's like, it's like bittersweet in a way, because you're kind of like, well, I'm like pretty far into my life <laughs> to be figuring this stuff out, you know, and you just, I just look back on it and I just think, God, things just could have been so much easier. Hmm. But I do believe that, you know, all, it all has, I'm not gonna say everything happens for a reason, but it's, it's, everything can be redeemed and it can be redeemed to help other people. And it gives me empathy. Well, I've always said this and I'll say it again. And hopefully our conversation was evidence to support that. Um, I really value how you show up in the world, who you are, what, you know, in I, look, I, I value what you know. I'd love that'd be a fun conversation to have too, because you just know a lot of interesting things from your seat. You have to, to be able to represent it in the way that you do. But I really wanted today for people to get to know what I've gotten to know, which is just you. Mm, and that's sweet. Thank you. It's important and we value it and we appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. I love you guys. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.